Something is wrong. Something is wrong with me. Lizzie, I know. That's why we need to get you help. No, but I'm dying. Don't you understand? No, I'm I don't understand. But I am. I'm dying. I'm dying. It's on the inside. So don't try and understand. Why are you trying so hard to Did ruin I my life? You'll thank me later. For what? Leaving Dad? I'm trying to give you every opportunity that I can. For what? So I can become a strong, independent woman like you? Such a slightest breath And I know who I am Look at me! I'm about to have our baby! Why is that not enough for you? Of course it's enough! I'm not going anywhere, I'm here with you. I want to be alone with you. See, this is why it scares me, is because you don't take it seriously. I take it seriously. I think it's pretty, like... You have a camera in my face in the bathroom. Yeah, you look beautiful in the morning, by the way. Maybe we shouldn't have the camera. Uh, hello? Words that define And they scream it out loud Welcome to Series 3 of The Projectionist Podcast. Horror films affect us all in different ways, but fear is a universal and psychologically fascinating emotion. This season, we're talking about women in horror, dividing our exploration into themes including demons, pregnancy, the detective, the extreme, perfection, and love. We'll be discussing the portrayal of female subjectivity in horror, as well as the impact that watching them can have on us as women. Don't be scared, you're safe with us. Thank you, Sarah. We'll be in touch. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Mary. We're back. We are. Uh, We're doing this episode in our series of Women in Horror. And today we're talking about the theme of pregnancy. Yeah, which neither of us has experienced, but uh, we're still going to talk about it. We're still going to... that's what podcasters do. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Um, And the two films we've chosen to talk about are um, A L'Intérieur, Inside, Mm -hmm. um, and Mother, Aronofsky's film. Mm -hmm. Who directed Inside? So Inside... um, was directed by, it's actually a, um, a team of two guys, Julien Maury and Alexandre Bustillo. That was beautiful, Mary. <laughs> My French education has served me right here. Mm-hmm. Um, released in 2007. And actually, the, both of these films, Inside and Mother, they're both home invasion films. Yeah, they are. Um, um, so I guess we're going to start with Inside. Let's start with Inside. Okay. Shall I synopsize? Yes, please. Okay, I'm very excited about this because it's another horror film starring a Sarah. I know. Um, which so many do seem to be. Yeah. Um, I feel like my name's been very well used in the horror <laughs> genre. In, the film, in films in general. Mm. Um, so, the film opens with a car accident that injures expectant mother Sarah and kills her husband. The night before her baby is due, Sarah is spending the night alone, having rejected the company of her friends and mother, depressed and ambivalent about her impending motherhood. A nameless woman comes to the door asking to use the phone. When Sarah refuses to help, the stranger becomes threatening and so begins a night of horror. Perfect. Mm. Um, And actually, I feel like this is also 
uh, our second film with Viet Christal. It is, and it's going to be, uh, we're also going to do another New French Extremity yeah. film, Old French Extremity now, yeah. but what was termed the New French Extremity movement. Yeah. Um, and I think that we really, it feels like we're really challenging our viewers at the moment because, you know. We are. We are. We are. We're really asking them to, like, to put a lot of trust in us to watch these films. Yeah. But I have to say, I was really nervous about watching Inside. Mm. I was really nervous, and mm-hmm. I really thought it wasn't that bad. I don't know if it's because we we've been dis- too desensitized watching it's so many horror films. We've become a little bit desensitized. Maybe uh, there were a few startling moments mm-hmm. in in Inside, um, but personally, I didn't feel that it wasn't such a huge provocation the, the way that almost Hounds of Love was mm-hmm. for me. Uh, I found that more terrifying. That's true. And I wonder, I'm just, this is pure speculation mm-hmm. and I can only speak for myself. I can't generalize, but um, I've been like full disclosure. I have actually like, I believe a pregnancy phobia. Interesting. Yeah. And so, phobia in other people's pregnancies? Not so much that I feel frightened of being around uh, a woman who's pregnant. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's more that the the idea that I should ever, uh, you know, be with child. Mm-hmm. It just fills me with terror. Um, so thankfully, I married a man who doesn't want to have kids, oh, as, I, as I don't. Yeah. Um, in fact, um, just a little bit of trivia. When I first met my husband, when we went on our first date, I told him, I, I, before before the dinner arrived, <laughs> I, I, I said, just so you know, I, I don't want to have kids. Um, and if you do, then we're wasting our time. Uh, and he was like, well, he's like, I, I was open to the idea, but uh, if, you know, if things progress between us, then I don't want kids either. And I'm like, wow, wow that, you're, you're pretty open-minded. I think I'll keep you. Yeah, Paul's amazing. That's like, I feel like every single episode is coming like an ode to Paul. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah. I have to say, I, um, I don't, I don't identify with the pregnancy phobia mm-hmm. thing. I mean, I think every, I think everyone finds birth pretty terrifying. Yeah. Um, it's more that I'm like, I find it just children very anxiety producing, not in themselves, mm-hmm. but in just the spectrum of emotions they go through. I find very, very upsetting. Like, I don't think I want to watch children being like nervous on their first day of school. Yeah. Or like, I was on, I was on the tube with a bunch of children. It's like school trip season. Like mm-hmm. children in um, like reflective vests keep getting on the tube Alex said they're like tiny builders like a team of tiny builders maybe they're like being taken to work the gilets jaunes yeah exactly (laughs) and um just like they all they flood onto the train like they want to sit down they can't all sit down like they want to be near their friends they can't all be near their friends and I just keep seeing these like flashes of like anxiety and unsureness flash across their face and I swear to god I almost had a panic attack on the train just surrounded by these children who were just going through just too many feelings. I don't want... I've already went through all those feelings once. I don't want to go through them again. Like, I don't want to go through them I again, but you. worse, because it's someone else, and, you, you know, you care so much more. No. They just... It's just... A, the whole situation of having children is just horrifying on all levels. Physical, emotional, practical, financial. Yeah. Ridiculous. Don't know why anyone would do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it feels overwhelming, because mm. it's like... I think both of us were quite, like high empath kind of people so we absorb the feelings of others whether we like it or not Mm -hmm. and so I think particularly with children because they're they're vulnerable they need looking after yeah so the idea that I you know yeah I completely relate to what you've just said and in a way what we're kind of saying right now 
that um, you know maybe certain like you know misgivings or reluctance around child childbearing child rearing etc. In a way, what we're saying is very taboo because mm-hmm. I don't know about you, but I feel like we live in a society where women are only allowed one default kind of position and attitude towards children and that's that we we should want them Mm -hmm. and any woman who deviates a little bit from the idea that motherhood is the ultimate woman defining experience of of life if if we don't necessarily buy into that rhetoric then we're somehow like too divergent or that's that's too that's not acceptable Mm -hmm. and so I wonder whether this maybe subgenre of horror cinema that focuses on pregnancy specifically as a female experience whether it is a kind of adequate language to maybe visit some of those disturbing feelings that women have that are perfectly valid Mm -hmm. you know it's not every woman women should be expected to have kids and maybe the horror genre is a good language to approach those I anxieties. I was thinking about the, the multiple examples of kind of ambivalent mothers yeah. in horror cinema and why that seems to be a trope that does occur. And I think it's just a tra- it's just a genre where you can discuss that. Yeah. And not even necessarily to be, you know, anti-motherhood, no, but no. to also to be a mother and to not be particularly into it. I mean, I know that later on in the series we're going to talk about The Ring. Yes. And I really enjoy that, particularly, it's not even so much the Japanese version, it's the American version of The Ring that has a mother who is really not that interested in being a mother, so much so that her son, like, dresses himself and, like, you know, she doesn't do any mothering. And um, I just find that so fascinating. So I think the fact that, yeah, the fact that it does crop up in horror cinema, I think horror cinema gives you permission to look at things that no other genre of cinema does. So whenever there's something a little bit difficult, it will have been looked at in horror cinema. And that's what makes the genre so wonderful. And that is why you I mean, I've been a person that's been too scared to watch movies. I sat down, I... We, we planned out this program, I was very excited about it, and as I sat down to watch Inside, I was just like, why did I do this to myself? Like, mm. why am I putting myself through this? It's always worth it. I it never, is. I mean, I've seen a couple of films where I wish I hadn't watched them, but by and large, horror cinema's worth it. It's worth putting, it, like, it's just hard work, but it's worth putting yourself through that emotional labour in exchange for the freedom that you have to look at subjects that you don't get to look at in other genres. And I really applaud filmmakers for tap- tackling the representation of pregnancy in, in film when it's, not, when it's not exclusively spoken about in purely a positive way. Yeah. Um, I mean, we, we have in our series previously covered um, Alice Lowe's Prevenge. Yeah. And that, that falls into another wonderful, you know, example of, of the horror cinema having inherent to it that mechanism to discursively examine these feelings that otherwise would be unacceptable mm-hmm. i mean i don't know about you but um inside is one of my favorite christmas films it is a christmas film also, it is a christmas film. my friend jordan who i run zodiac film club with mm-hmm. mentioned that so is mother if you oh, were, if you want yes. to look if you i mean we'll talk about it more later but as you know like there's a ton of of you know analogies that fit mother yeah one of them is christianity the, is the birth, the birth of, Christ. of christ um, it's a Christmas film. There's a bit in it which I actually want to use as a Christmas card, which is the bit when she goes, when she goes, it's time for everyone to get the fuck out of my house. Like, how much more of a Christmas emotion <laughs> is that? 
at the end of the day like it's time for you all to leave like we don't have to do this again for another year like that it's such a christmas film so actually these are two christmas films these are two christmas films which is perfect because we're getting close to christmas so uh we're we're here helping you get into the spirit of the holidays that's what we're here to do um (laughs) yeah because I mean, with Inside, so she's an expectant mother. She survived a car accident. Mm-hmm. Husband dies. Months later, she's depressed. And she's making these final preparations for the delivery, which she's towards the end of her term. And it's also Christmas time. Yeah. Uh, and But she's still reeling from her husband's death. Um, so in, in a way, she's sort of associated her child with this terrible death so the, the 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 symbol that the child has to take on invariably is very much infused with trauma mm-hmm. and then as you said in the synopsis this unknown mystery woman knocking mm-hmm. on the door there's something about her i mean in both films that we've talked about mm-hmm. the um trouble every day and this one, yeah, the, like I mean, it's just it's just a quality Beatrice Daly brings to the role to ro- her roles where she's n- not entirely human, that like she's kind of yeah. animalistic, and she doesn't say very much in this film. She has like, these kind of two halves where she like is very, she you know she you, she has this like very low voice and it's very kind of calming, and then she has this like animal howl that she yeah. keeps doing, beastly, yeah, and uh, it's very scary, and so it's like, it, but it kind of invites you to treat her not as a, not as a, a person no. that's like a symbol or a an analogy you know yeah um, like an, almost like an emotional process yeah she is she's not like she's you know you can't she's not really a subject com- she's not a subject at all she's just like a, a feeling or like a fear or something yeah, so like true. that and that's really something she brings to us in all of her roles i think i agree and so she's that makes like id yeah she's a, yeah absolutely yeah. she's this unconscious primal fear yeah um, very animalistic that kind of def- defies tenets of uh, the Enlightenment, you know, reason and rationality and temperance. She's something more ancient than that, mm-hmm. that, that's, that has stayed with us, actually. We're constantly kind of pulled between the two. And so it, allegorically, the film is perfect because when that knock on the door comes and this woman is intent on coming inside. Everything Sarah's done to try and create a semblance of normality and security in her home for herself and her unborn baby, it's all, it's all about to be ruptured. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, something, there, there's something intent on invading the space when you don't want a child or when your baby has taken on traumatic connotations to do with death that feels like an unwanted invasion of your selfhood mm-hmm. that um, it feels very all very attacking and somehow that you're no longer yourself. And theoretically, I link this with Julia Kristeva's uh, idea of abjection, the state of being cast off. You know, this is what she explores in her book, The Powers of Horror, which has connotations with uh, degradation and baseness. It's actually a really good metaphor for the transformation of the woman from being just herself, mm-hmm. her identity, on her road to motherhood. No one really talks about how that can be quite scary, how you're, you're going to lose aspects of your identity or at least transform into something else. Mm-hmm. You're, not, you're not just going to be who you always were. A, change, a radical change is required. And so allegorically, the abjection that's done to her, all the beatings that she 
sustains from this intruder and the ways that her body is disfigured and mutilated and she has to close herself off from the fear of being killed by this mm. intruder. It's it's very violent and it's all done physically, but I can't help but think that this is how emotionally it feels for her. So in a way, like um, Beatrice Daly is like the process of like, it's like a night of just labor, you know, like the violence that's done wow. to your body kind of being ripped apart and ruptured. then like, and ruptured. And then like when it's over, you're, you're dead and there's someone, there's someone else there being a mother. Exactly. Um, um, I mean, I think uh, if some people haven't like made it through the film or been able to watch the film, like I always find it easier. To, I actually always find it easier to watch horror films when I've read the synopsis and I know exactly what happens. Mm-hmm. So we should say that I, you know, I kind of left it out in my synopsis, but we should say that what does happen is that the woman gets inside the house, mm-hmm. despite despite Sarah phoning the police and having a patrol car visiting her and having people who are worried about her come to the house. So when gets inside the house and is like her mission there is to cut Sarah open and take this baby as like a replacement for the baby that she lost when her car collided with Sarah in the car accident at the beginning Um, and I would say I have to always think that when you just hear that synopsis by itself especially when met done by two male directors like you do think like that's a misogynist idea Mm -hmm. like the idea of like women stealing babies from each (laughs) other is like the, the most grotesque form of misogyny even though I know more I know about three true crime stories where that does happen oh my god yeah which I won't I won't waste time but I'll tell you afterwards they're like horrifying and all of them like end with the woman surviving so it's okay wow um but yeah when you do look at it just as like an analogy like the fact she has like she's she's determined to go through this alone Mm -hmm. and like she's determined to shut the doors of her house but like the violence gets in anyway like you can't because the violence in a way like it comes it it comes from inside her exactly she can't stop it yeah no it's like it's unstoppable like it's her due date it's it's happening like it's there's there is no stopping her and it does seem that Beatrice Daly gets in through nowhere. Yeah. Because, you know, she's outside the house. She like she won't let her in. She, like, beats against the window and cracks the window, but she doesn't get in that way. And then just, like, the police come around. She's not here anymore. She's inside the house already. And, she like, you slid in. No, no idea. And there's never any explanation to how she got inside the house. It's like she just appeared. Like, she didn't, you know, she just appeared in there and she's always been there. And yeah. She's, and that there's, you know, there's a point where Sarah's asleep and this woman's, like, walking around the house opening drawers. Like, and it's like, it doesn't wake her up. She's just, she's just in there. Oh my God. You know, like at first I was like, I doubt, I really doubt in the power of those scissors. And then I remembered that actually like fabric scissors are that sharp. They really are. Like they're, they're terrifyingly sharp. I think a lot of like the tools that women have to like have, like commit female crafts with are like actually really dangerous. They're extremely dangerous weapons. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. And I really like the, um, the use of all of the, like these like traditional female crafty implements as weapons, there's like a knitting needle, there's sewing scissors. Um, the fact that Sarah's a photographer and she uses that the flash on her camera as a form of defense, like rear window. Yeah. And it kind of fits really neatly into mother as well because if you take away 
like if you replace sort of identity or all of these other analogies with the the analogy of creativity like yourself as a creative being and all of the things that can come and interfere with that Mm -hmm. and the idea of like selfishness and the opposite of selfishness that's really interesting that you've got this like this woman who is ambivalent about being a mother but doesn't isn't ambivalent about being a creative like she's still taking pictures she's kind of invading other people's lives at the beginning when she's sitting on a park bench taking pictures of other people's children which I thought was very illegal in France I mean it's legal here like you can't really do yeah, you haven't been able to do it in France for a long time. Yeah, take pictures of other people. Yeah, on the street. Like you need that. consent. Yeah, yeah. Like you, people kick up, kick off when you do that yeah. in France. So that is a strange. It's a strange scene that she's kind of almost like she's not really in society mm. anymore. And like there is that there is that idea of an artist as someone who like doesn't take part in the normal in you know it doesn't take part in society and is in like all the idea that all creativity is exploitative to a certain extent mm-hmm. and it has to be and the idea that creativity has to be divorced from morality in order to sustain itself and to exist there's i don't know i think it's like i don't think it's very explicitly explored in this film mm-hmm. but i think the tools are there and then those ideas about creativity are much more explicitly explored in mother in mother yeah, yeah yeah you know at the end of the day psychoanalytically you know the life force the eros Mm -hmm. uh, that Freud wrote about is not just romantic love and sexuality. It can be professional contribution and ways that we work in a positive, productive way to benefit ourselves and other people Mm -hmm. and the pursuit of that. And that's part of the life force, the essence of the life drive, which is opposed to the death drive. So it does make sense that for someone who's a creative, you know, uh, an artistic type like Sarah in, in Inside, there is that kind of um, unshakable fear that this baby is going to come and like usurp all her life force mm-hmm. and deplete her, her drive to be professionally productive or creatively productive. And that is a very valid... Uh, apprehension that some expectant mothers have Mm. but they're not really given the license to express those worries because it's too taboo you know they're already going to be cast as bad mothers this act of selflessness the ultimate altruism which is paired with motherhood has to be a form of devotion and no one is allowed to deviate from that and yeah it's so interesting though because under the current government and uh, the sort of the current like financial structure in this country and in most of the western world yeah there's also this like this kind of strange opposite thing of you can't even consider being a mother until you've like succeeded to such a a huge extent in your career like you can't like unless you know you happen to be married to someone who makes a lot more money than you like i think for a lot of women that i know a lot of like the creative women who like it's not even an option no, for not. them to be a mother because you could like it's not it's just not possible they haven't done well enough creatively so they've like failed before they've even started yeah. like they failed at like they you know or like they don't make enough they, they haven't like turned their creativity into wealth and so they can't also they also can't become mothers yeah. because they don't have like the you know the, the option is taken away the from them because the because everything is unaffordable housing mm-hmm. is unaffordable childcare is unaffordable so it is very it's a very schizophrenic set of standards mm-hmm. where we're pressurized as women to include childbirth and motherhood as our lifelong goals Mm -hmm. and yet the structures in society don't actually support us if if we did want to have kids um 
it creates I've, I think that's a recipe for a mind fuck yeah 100% <laughs> it really is yeah um, it's very interesting but yeah maybe I th- also think maybe the fact that it was made by two male directors yeah. did allow that kind of that sort of remove mm. from the sort of like sentimentalization of motherhood yeah. um, not that you know fathers can't be sentimental no but there you know maybe there's like less of a kind of visceral like yeah. sense of like of protectiveness um and i did think but like those i think if you were pregnant or if you had had a baby like those scenes of like just the like in utero fetuses would have been really upsetting because that sort of scene in the beginning yeah that like really kind of cushioning scene where the baby kind of gets bumped by that car crash is really like that was quite shocking yeah it was startling yeah that's why when she's lying sarah's lying in bed and she thinks she's safe in her own home Mm. not knowing that this woman has invaded her space and she gets the scissors and she just sort of runs it. Oh my God. It's so gross. And it it really does tap into this. We imagine, we hope that if, if a mother has decided to carry their baby to term, that that should be the ultimate non-negotiable space in terms of like safety and absolute support and and being enveloped and cared for. And for that to be in any way disturbed, let alone in this brutalized, rupturing way, that is quite disgusting and that kind of hits a nerve which is quite abject about spaces uh being cast off chrisiva talks about it as the place where meaning collapses the feeling of repulsion that we feel when we're presented with the confrontation with elements of the body that are taboo like filth waste anything that is makes us feel uncomfortable and this film is full of that mm-hmm. it's just a a, um, a parade of abjection you know it's a festival of abjection what did you make of if there's also an intergenerational conflict in right yeah i was thinking about that there there is this sort of moment where sarah kills her mother like in confusion because it's you know some there's so many points where this house is like full of potential saviors and like in very like traditional horror movie style like everyone gets killed off because just because between the standoff with these like two depressed women and um yeah I did think that was really interesting because, you know, there is also that moment where you kind of, when you do have a baby, you cease to sort of be be someone's child and you're someone's mother instead. Like, it just, you know, like, it is, Mm -hmm. like, you have to kind of, and that, like, in this sense, it's it's very literal. Like, a mother, her mother dies, like, in order to kind of make room for, like, there's only room for one mother in this house. (laughs) And there's quite a lot of competition already. So, like, she has to go, doesn't she? That's so true. Like, there's some... I don't know, it's, like, very interesting. Like, only... There's only one baby in the house, and, like, someone's having it. And, you know, like, every, like anyone who doesn't have it has to die. I don't know, it was very interesting. That is so true. Mm. It made me also wonder whether there might have been a tra- an unspoken um, mother-daughter trauma, mm. you know, that was being somehow processed in this in this horrific way where um i don't know it because there's not that much dialogue in this film we don't really it's all represented in such a visceral way yeah uh, we don't really get a full picture it's like the characters aren't developed in that narratively sophisticated way that we know what happened in their past or where they're coming from emotionally we just get little glimpses little clues about what the dynamics between the characters you know and there is like another way in which um like Beatrice Daly seems again like something more than human or someone like someone that sort of exists in the in 
like the realms of kind of the unknown or yeah. things that are unspoken because she kind of voices the intergenerational trauma without meaning to. She says to you know that she's sitting on the sofa that her Sarah's employer Sarah's like locked upstairs in the bathroom. Her employer's there. She thinks that this woman Sarah's mother. They're having a conversation. And she says, um, he says, you know, it must be so hard for Sarah, like, you know, this thing that happened. She says, oh, yeah, it's hard for me too. Or something like that. She says, it's been hard for all of us, both of us. And she means that she's, you know, that she's a survivor of that accident too. But at the same time, she's kind of voicing, like, voicing something, I don't know, something that, that is clearly there. Like, it's been hard, it's hard for everyone when someone's, like, grief-stricken or depressed. Yeah. And, like, there is, like, Sarah wants her grief, like, all to herself. Yeah. She's, like, the kind of, like, she's, like, the epitome of what we think of as, like, a selfish, like, a selfish woman. She doesn't want, she, like, people keep, like, reaching out to her. She doesn't want to, she doesn't want them to be there. She takes pictures of other people without their permission. Yeah. She won't help this stranger outside who needs a telephone on Christmas <laughs> Eve, like. Oh, yeah. You know, and. She's a bit of a Scrooge. She's a bit of a Scrooge, yeah. <laughs> like, it's kind of a gory Christmas carol. Yeah. It is kind of a gory it Christmas is actually... carol. There's, like, ghosts of her, like, past, <laughs> like, you know, her past, her, like, present, her future. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's amazing. That's brilliant, Sarah. Yeah. Wow, that is so true. Like, I mean, it, it was tragic, that like, poor woman getting stabbed in yeah. the neck with a knitting needle, but... In the flow it, of the dynamics with that woman... Like it was maybe bound to happen. It was bound to happen. Yeah. And actually, it, like, it literally does like, seep into her knitting as well. Yeah. There was that amazing moment, which I really loved and identified yeah. with, where she holds up her knitting. And it's just a... I don't know how you could do knitting that bad. <laughs> I mean, like, as if it's got, like, a gaping hole in the middle, like, this sort of, like, gaping hole of, you know, what's to come, and um, it's just, it's so interesting, like, I, I, I love Sarah, like, I love her so much. Me like, too. She's so, I feel like, for you, her. You, I feel for her so much, I relate to her, I would like to be her friend, yeah. like, and she says so little, you don't really know about her, you don't know about anyone in this film, but just those few moments, her with the, like, the camera, the fact that she uses this camera as her defence, the fact that she's in the dark room at midnight, like processing this film, like you know that she's taken of her attacker, and that, and that she can't knit, like that her knitting is like so bad because she's so traumatized. Yeah. I don't. It's just such a great. It's just such an amazing skill to give you all of that, like to help help let you know this character without. Like a sort of like mani- manic pixie dream girl, like exactly. dialogue or like set of hobbies or anything like that. You just know everything you need to know about her from like what she silently does. And yeah. that's such a great, it's just, you don't often get that really amazing. Like just, I, I feel like I know that woman. Me too. Uh, like, you know, and like, we like we know her, we know that she kind of wants to kill her mother because yeah. <laughs> like, you know, because she's not like, like she wants to be alone in her grief. Yeah. And because when you're depressed or grieving, like other people want you to be okay, and that feels like very, that feels like, that feels like an attack. Yeah. And makes you feel worse. Yeah, it makes you feel so much worse, and especially when it's a family member, because yeah. like all they've wanted their whole life is for you to be okay, and it's not going to happen. No. And there's going to be a, and you don't need that conflict on top of the other conflicts you've got. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, it's uh, it, it's a great film. It is a great film, yeah. and you're right. All of those things endear me to her as well, mm-hmm. and it makes me feel like she, her, she's manifesting her pathology, her psychopathology, in kind of an unapologetic way. Yeah. 
and that's okay, you know? Um, she doesn't have to pretend that despite everything, this is the best thing that's happening to her, mm-hmm. you know, like having a baby. This Having a baby is rightfully represented as the challenge that it is in the midst of all this other trauma mm-hmm. and difficulty that she's experiencing. And this film makes a space for that. It's okay. Yeah. I like that. Should we move on to my Yeah. Okay. A nameless couple live alone in a beautiful house in a tranquil setting. While the woman tries to spend her time creating a home and a family, her husband, a poet, is more occupied with the fans of his work who come to the house and wreak havoc. Perfect. Mm-hmm. So this is Darren Aronofsky's 2017 release. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's an American psychological horror film. I think it's a sort of part of the continuous fascination that Aronofsky has with theology, mm-hmm. specifically the Bible and specifically the book of Genesis. Mm-hmm. Like even in his first film, uh, Pi, there was like a big element of the Bible in there. And in the fountain, he deals in the book of Genesis, but it's the tree of life. And then he obviously made a film um, about Noah's Ark, Mm -hmm. which is also a story from the Bible. And now here in Mother, he's returning to the book of Genesis, but he's talking about the tree of knowledge Mm -hmm. and the Javier Bardem character maybe posing as God himself, Mm -hmm. perhaps. And how there's these specific rules about what humans are allowed to do and not do. Yeah. And then Jennifer Lawrence, she's either the earth or the universe that God created and she's she's rebuilding this house that went up in flames. She's redoing everything. Mm-hmm. And there's some fantastic scenes of her with plaster. Oh, it's they're so like like it's like watching it's like being on a Pinterest. It's, uh, it's, it's lovely. With like, a beautiful mood board. With a beautiful mood board and she's like this like she's sort of like an influencer, like an interior <laughs> design influencer. It really I mean but it, it, I mean I say that I'm I'm being like I'm, I'm actually being unkind because I, I, I actually really genuinely do love Jennifer Lawrence's, um, well, like her form of creativity in this mm-hmm. film. I, I really genuinely do. Me like, too. I think there's something, and, and I have to say that when, because we went to see this film together. We did. Um, and I didn't enjoy it very much. I mean, I actually enjoyed it while I was watching it, and I then I stopped liking it for a while the first time I watched it because mm-hmm. I felt like, I I felt like that sort of that, analogy that like biblical analogy or the environmental analogy or all of the Mm. analogies that kind of got placed in it they I just got a little bit annoyed with it like Mm -hmm. I felt that they felt like a little bit um I don't know I I I just kind of railed against like having to view a film in that way um and I think that there's been a lot of cinema that has felt like it has to be read in that way or there's maybe a lot of I just I see a lot of reading cinema in that way you see a lot with like the Ari Aster films this kind of you know like this means this and this means that and that's how this all and it's I don't think that's how you watch a film no you know and so that it annoyed me a little bit and then I I um, rewatched it because mm-hmm. I remember watching it with you and just none of that stuff occurring to me. Mm. Re- like maybe okay, like a few things, like you know, a few things that I thought were a bit biblical or to do with the environment. I just remember it being such a powerful story about the like the artist. Yes. And the different forms of being an artist and the problems inherent in being an artist and all of those things and that's how I read the film oh. and I and I remember thinking that there was no space for that reading of the film so I stopped liking the film and I saw it again and I became so much more confident in my initial reading mm-hmm. 
that I began, began to like the film again. Mm. Um, and I suppose it can be both, and I think Aronofsky wanted it to be both. I think so. Um, I think it's more that, like, I think it's more the sort of, there's a kind of, like, I'm going to just call it the, the mansplaining atmosphere <laughs> around cinema, where you can't, there are no sort of dissenting opinions about what a film means, yeah. or, like, you know, or, like, how, how you feel it reflects human nature, which is obviously so different to you as, as it, you know, than it is to anyone else. Mm. Um, but I really, I'm really kind of interested in this whole conversation about pregnancy as a conversation about being an artist, about creating something, about whether you should be creating a child as well as the other things that you are creating, yeah. or you know whether like whether like it's too much or enough or, and I have to, and I have to say I think I've probably said this before on this podcast, but me and a certain of my friends we we talk about our work together and the mm-hmm. things that we do, the projects that we do. Mm-hmm. Like we're not all, I don't think we're all, some, some of them are artists, like will self-identify as artists, like I don't, I think, like I, I just work on projects. But we refer to our stages as, we talk about them as stages of pre- pregnancy, like we, whenever someone's having a problem, I was like, well, which stage do you think you're in? Do you think you're in like the manically fucking to try and get pregnant stage? Or do you think you're in like the gestation stage? Do you think you're having a painful labor? Or do you think that you like gave birth too much last year and now you've got too many children to look after? <laughs> like, you know, I think, and I think that is, yeah. that is how creativity works. Yeah. And I think here you're kind of seeing these two, these sort of two styles of creativity where someone, one person is very content to live in the work Mm-hmm. and is you know is in, enjoys the process mm-hmm. and then another person feels that they can't their work doesn't exist without the reactions of other people mm-hmm. without and like is like is sort of like mm-hmm. is you know like is is being both kind of buoyed up but also destroyed by their like their fans by the people what other people are reading in their work like and their own narcissistic and their own narcissistic like, interpretations yeah and like and but but at the same time cannot could not survive without the attention or cannot survive yeah. without the response like can't be happy sort of creating work that lives that they they live among or like that they, you know just with the process has to like really really cannot bear the idea of not being listened to or not being heard mm. and content for adulation content for adulation and it's like this kind of it's this consistent thing that like swallows up him and his entire family and i did and i feel both sides of I can you know identify with both sides of that you know like I'm someone who cannot be loyal to a single project I do like I have like four or five jobs yeah and I feel like everything suffers because I can't concentrate on one thing yeah and then I and then at the same time I also really identify with that kind of what is presented in the film as like the more feminine film like like, I would just be really really happy if I could just figure out something to do with my hands Mm -hmm. I would be healthier and happier but I can't seem to do that because all I really want is to like reach people and yeah. to be appreciated and to build up a name for myself. Yeah. So I think in a way it's like this like dichotomy of like these, these like opposing forms of creativity. Wow. I find really beautiful and really like human. Yeah, that lovely. conflict, that tension is, is an authentic one. Yeah, you it know? really is. Like, yeah. You know, you're really unkind to the person that just wants to sit at home and make things nice for yourself. <laughs> Like, because they're not, like, glamorous enough or, yeah. like, they haven't, you know, they don't feed your ego. And, yeah. Um, yeah. And in a way, what you just said makes me think that maybe the Javier Bardem character who's presented as this very talented writer mm-hmm. who's had writer's block, he wrote this amazing kind of project that everyone loved, 
but that was a long time ago. Now he's feeling the pressure to submit another work. And then he does write a second book, and that's a, that's a huge hit. It's a yeah. sensation. It's almost like the artist as Old Testament God who is just very selfish mm -hmm. and just wants adulation and wants human devotion and worship. Um, that artist who relies on his muses and all this human drama, in a way, he's the kind of influencer who, yeah. who, who, need, who wants those likes. You know, he wants those hits. Because it's so funny how it all starts. Like, there's like a kind of period of respite, but it's just the moment where she's getting close to her maybe due date and she's preparing a dinner. It's supposed to be like an intimate family dinner, just the two of them. And then that's when we start getting the first glimpses of this chaos. She sees people through the window. People have come over to visit him. It's like he's being doorstepped by paparazzi or something. And then these visitors start to creep into the house. And then there's more of them. And then there's more of them. And they start invading. And they're taking things that don't belong to them. And they're appearing in every room. They're disturbing the peace that she worked so hard to build. Mm -hmm. uh, all the work that she did to re refurbish the house is going to waste because they're now destroying the house. And now there's more people and more people and a constantly this constant flow interrupting her space, disturbing her space. On the one hand, it kind of feeds a little bit into that kind of body horror thing, that Cronenberg thing of the woman's body as being invaded by an alien force. Mm -hmm. And that's pregnancy, you know, like it kind of satisfies that drive. But also Aronofsky's on record for saying that um, he was influenced by uh, Louis Benoel's film Exterminating Angel, mm -hmm. which I feel like I always mention. Yeah, like I'm a, comes up in every podcast. I feel like I'm a broken record with yeah. that film, but this business that, of people being unable to leave a space mm -hmm. inexplicably, like there's just a, a, an accumulation of ever more people in one space and how that is the horror element. That, that kind of also satisfies the allegory of the artist and their eternal need for inspiration and how that becomes so cluttered in a space yeah. like how do you how does one reasonably manage and regulate inspiration it's also there's something about the morality of the artist i think in yeah. this like because we have these like guilty feelings about like art as this sort of superfluous thing any kind of art, film, fashion, painting, anything that we had, that the output of the artist has to somehow has to somehow contribute to society. But whereas, actually, like I think, innate within all kind of artistry, like yeah. that, that like I really, really relate to his like his incredible enjoyment of this family's this like family drama that plays out in front of them in the beginning of the film. You know, it's like sibling rivalry. This, like this fight to the death. This like you know this this funeral. Everyone's grief. Like. And he's really enjoying it. Yeah. And uh, and he enjoys it much more than than the things that are supposed to be good for him. And then the fact life that with her, life with her, you know. And I think that and then the fact that everyone kind of comes in as like you know this work, this is like life changing work, and it's it's had this incredibly good impact on us. It's, it's like it doesn't it doesn't necessarily come from that place, and you might be expecting too much of it. 
I mean, that's and it's so interesting because we talk about this all the time because we're always talking about films that people are so offended by. Yeah. You know, these films, and like that's what people are really saying. Like, I don't see how this contributes to society. It doesn't uplift me. It yeah. doesn't make me feel better. It doesn't show a good light. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't contribute all its profits to charity. It doesn't use the correct like language that yeah. you know we need to kind of cushion everyone's anxieties. Yeah. This is bad. This is bad work, and it's like I know that's not what art's for no. not, art's not for making you feel better or for making the world a better place no oh and if it does make the world a better place it makes the world it's a better incidental place it's incidental and it's also you know the only thing it really should co- contribute to is the c- conversation about how complex all of these things are exactly it doesn't and, you know, and there is like you can't hide the fact that there is pleasure in a bit of exploitation there is pleasure in people's and people's tragedies in people's dramas in like you know, true crime in, in in like horror in. There's a morbid fascination. There's a morbid fascination, yeah. and you can't just keep saying it's not right, it's not right, it's not right, it's not right, and expect that no one's ever going to get any inspiration or enjoyment or like interest out of it. Yeah, I it, agree. You can't fight against it. You can't no. keep saying like, but you know, she keeps saying like, what about me? Like, why don't I make you happy? Why can't it just be me? Why can't it just be me? And it's not about, like, it's not about men and women. It's not about motherhood. It's not about relationships. It's about, like, why can't you just be happy with this good, simple stuff? (laughs) It's like, just it doesn't work like that. No, it doesn't. And art doesn't come from that place. And you can't, you know, you can't, you, like, you can't, like, crush it into this, like... Public service announcement. Yeah, exactly. That's not what it's for. That's not what it's for. It doesn't matter how much you insist that it is. No. It won't ever be that way. No, and um, I, I completely agree. Like, I couldn't agree more with what you just said. And I think that if we try and impose this, like, sanctimonious uh, purpose for art, that it should only be in the service of a positive message mm-hmm. and empowering viewers, um, really what you're doing is you're just crafting... Um, a formula that will alienate your audience because the truth is that the art mechanism in itself I firmly believe is a very very healthy process of confronting really problematic things really um, you know sometimes really nasty things Mm -hmm. and that that process should be sacred I don't really I don't at all believe that the artists should be necessarily upheld as a symbol of morality or some kind of role model for society and this was one of those films because i remember once when we were talking about the uh, in our joker review you said every year there's a film that like you know really bothers people in fact that's almost a public service in itself like providing (laughs) that film so that people can sort of like rally together and say like we are not like we are not standing for this (laughs) there are films that help us get outraged and there are films that help us get outraged from a moralistic standpoint, and there are films that help us get outraged from an amoral standpoint. Yeah. I think it's important to exercise that that feeling of outrage, and then as long as you use it when you really need it, you know, you yeah. use it when like your national health service is being like yeah, and, like you know, you yeah, for, for things that are consequential and yeah. it affects policies mm-hmm. and people's lives. Yeah, the film becomes much more interesting when we read it as purely an allegory Mm -hmm. i don't these people are not named they don't have names they're not autonomous um individuals they're it's not like inside where you like see the interiority of this character and you like get to know her as a person no it's not not like that not at all that's not what the film is for that's not what the film is for 
uh, it's easy to forget how one-track-minded an artist has to be mm-hmm. to create what they do. There is no space left for anything else. They've given themselves over to a process, and I have a lot of respect for that. That doesn't necessarily mean that the only artist is like a selfish person, is a selfish no, one, of and course the only not. like creative is the psychopath. Like, oh, yeah. I you know, I think um, I've I've been going to career counselling in yeah. the last year, um, and I think that the thing that I kind of uncovered there is like. If you want to create something, especially if you want like something like a film or like you know you want to get other people on board with your creations, if you want to do something something for an audience, like you like it's you have to be so brave, yeah. like and so you have to be so brave about brave about being judged about whether you're like whether your heart is in the right place, whether you're making this film that is like you know whether you're like, you have to not censor yourself with your you know fear about like who you're going to offend or who's going to like this. And that's like, that's asking a lot of a person. It's a really like destroying thing. And if you're someone who, if you're, particularly if you're a woman who like has always been told that you, you should be looking after other people's yeah. feelings, it's, it doesn't come naturally to you. And I think... It's a it, daring thing to it's do. It's a really daring thing to do. I think like, you know, I want to make like one short film over the course of next year. I'm going to need therapy the entire way through yeah. to like, and that's just, and all of that is, is just imposter syndrome. I mean, like, who am I yeah. to be doing this to people yeah. to be like, you know, and I think that really like if you if you're someone who's made something really big with a lot of people you know we talk about like but you know these sort of like bullying film directors a lot mm. and like maybe people do go wrong in in what they've done and they like don't balance like looking after others with looking after themselves yeah. enough but it's it's a very like it's a lot to ask of someone to like to like to be brave enough to, and to put their doubts aside enough to make something big yeah like that or even something small like you know, we have a lot of shame around doing that. Absolutely. So, I don't know, I think it's not doesn't necessarily come easy, but, like, I think sometimes you have to practice being... You have to kind of practice being selfish. Yeah. And, like, incrementally, it, it becomes easier for you. And you always have to check whether you're becoming a monster. Yeah. But, you know, I thought it's not possible... I really don't think it's possible to do without it, like, a little bit. So, you know, like, creativity is, like, it doesn't just come from nowhere. Yeah. It's, like, you're stealing from other people all the time. We take for granted that um, there's something about that that is also quite disfiguring mm-hmm. and quite, like, um, radically transforming ourselves through that process as well. Like, we're giving birth to a new version of ourselves. Yeah in that process and that's exciting but also quite terrifying which makes me think of um uh rd lang uh the the british psychiatrist i think he was actually scottish um he uh he wrote a book called the divided self and in that book he talks about something called ontological insecurity which is the state of yourself being slightly like off kilter like it's being tampered with or something and he develops this theory to explain the experiential phenomenon of psychosis Mm -hmm. and he has actually a lot of compassion for people who suffer from suffer from psychotic symptoms and um, what he said was that what we think of our whole like real discrete self as this like thing that's differentiated from the world and it's autonomous and it's never in doubt and has inner consistency it's specially cohesive with the body this is not something that just remains intact in that perfect 
unperturbed state your whole life. You're going to go through times when your ontological security is disturbed. Mm -hmm. And when that insecurity creeps in, you know, the identity and autonomy becomes more in question. And we, we, we may lack temporal continuity or um, we even may feel like we're partially divorced from our body. You know, there's identity is not necessarily kind of something that's perfectly discreet with perfect boundaries and contours. And he said there's sometimes certain types of anxieties that accompany that ontological insecurity. He, particularly the one that I feel like really connects to mother. Artie Lang talks about something called engulfment, a type of anxiety that's encountered by the ontologically insecure person. And he says it's that anxiety of being absorbed into someone else. Mm -hmm. It's almost like an escape from yourself. There's also, he talks about something called implosion, the fear that the world will crash in and obliterate you. This is this thing that we see in Mother. Jennifer Lawrence's character is at once engulfed by her baby. She's like longing to identify herself with her, with her role as a mother. But at the same time, the world crashes in on her. Mm. There's this unending flow of uninvited, unsolicited guests that just collapse onto her reality. That's a process of creativity that's not really spoken about a lot because it's not a glamorous thing, you know, that we want to identify ourselves with our work, but mm -hmm. at the same time, you know, th there's something very implosive about that as well. Yeah. And in a way, she kind of like, she kind of represents like the much more, a much more secure state of creativity where she knows yeah. when to protect her, what she's made. Yes. You know, and he doesn't. No, like, he doesn't. doesn't. He's just like, please, like, trample all over my work as long as you like me, as long as you like me. <laughs> and, like, she's much more, like, she gets Hellsbub to get out of her house a lot in that film. You know, she, like, yeah. she's like, this is my, like, this is what I have made and it is not for you. And so they kind of, like, they represent, like, these different sides of, like, how to express your selfishness or how to express your, like, your boundaries your from boundaries. other people as an artist. And in a way, like, she's, I mean, we sort of, you know, she, she's very insecure about her relationship to him. But at the same time, she's, like, she's much more of this kind of, like, this figure of sort of aloneness. Yeah. You know, she wants to be alone in the house. She wants, When she has that baby, she doesn't actually have any more need for him and she wants to be alone with the baby. And, um, yeah, she, I, do, I do really... I've said it before, but I do really like that scene where she says, it's time to get the fuck out of my house. Like, and she, like... And her rage just, like, blows up the yeah. whole world. And, you know, She's I think... the force of nature. Yeah, and there is that, you know... And I think there's something we can, like, learn from both of them. But the thing you can learn, like, there is ta a time... Yeah. When it that it is there is a time when everyone has to get the fuck out of your house <laughs> and it's about you and your like relationship with this thing you made. Yeah. And it's not it's not about anyone else. Absolutely. And so I think there's like a lot of like it seems like a you know, a terrifying film where everything goes wrong, but there's a lot you can learn from both those characters about how to be like an artist, how to be like responsible for yourself, for other people and for, you know, to juggle these things. Yeah. Yeah. And also the the existential dread when you're trying to main maintain yourself as an ontologically secure being in the face of absolute chaos, that's the real horror. Mm -hmm. Because you're desperately trying to retain some form of security and boundaries around yourself, but you, you've given yourself over to the process mm -hmm. and you can't c predict and control every aspect of it. 
some of it invades you in ways that you probably didn't actually factor in. Mm-hmm. And that's a scary thing. And it's kind of okay to let yourself be taken over by that. Yeah. And yeah, there's a lot of life lessons in this film, I feel. And, um, and the fact that it's kind of on a loop as well. Yeah. Like some people have compared Mother to like almost like a Bluebeard, um, you know? Yeah. Fairy tale, and that's such a weird like Bluebeard's so bizarre like as an <laughs> artifact in the world because it's supposed like it sort of yeah. appeared in the world as like kind of um a chastisement of women <laughs> reacting badly to like it, like their husband's past or like reacting badly to like you know like or like his it's, pathology it's a chastisement of like female jealousy when it's actually like about a murderer yeah but, like it's like the woman that's punished you know it's like if you hadn't like if you hadn't wanted more if you hadn't like if your like need for like self-expression hadn't been so like absolutely engulfing then you, you would have survived be, like, you, you would have survived you wouldn't be in this position and it's such an interesting thing like women take that take that story now Catherine Breyart's made one yeah apparently Annabella is making one yeah and like women sort of take that story now and like and look at it differently. They reclaim the story. Yeah, but this is such a it's a bizarre thing. But yeah, there's a little bit you know this this sort of bizarre struggle in that you see in Mother between a man and a woman and like her her unhappiness is something he just does not understand. No, like what what's what's the problem? And she has to pay the price for recognizing his pathology. Yeah, which is also an interesting thing. Bringing it back to your rightful. Um, you know, interpretation of the artist, the muse pays the price for the yeah. artist's pathology. 100%. You know? Like, it's, uh, yeah, it's... Like, they have this insatiable appetite to create, and they have this compulsion, mm-hmm. um, which has to center on their desire. But in while they do that, the people who inspire them, and they borrow from, um, you know... Th- they have to pay kind of a higher price. Yeah, didn't one of the pre-Raphaelite muses get like pneumonia from being in a bath, posing yeah. from, like posing for that Ophelia painting. Yeah, like it's just like it's not. And Picasso's, you know. Oh my God, Dora Maar ended up in a lunatic asylum. Dora Maar was an artist in her own right. Absolutely. And all he did, like during their entire relationship, was to belittle her medium, say it was only useful for documenting his work. Like and exactly like and that's what women are supposed to aspire to. Yeah. They're supposed to aspire to like you know not necessarily being amused, but but like being in love, like inspiring love. It's like this most important thing you're possibly supposed to do. And it, I mean, it full and kills women. Like love kills women. Yeah. Every fucking day. Every day. Like no wonder it's like so it's like couples are subject for horror movies. It's yeah. a dangerous thing for women to do to fall in love. Like most of the time. It's a dicey you business. Not, you are lucky to get out of it alive. If you're in love. You're lucky that you are listening to our podcast. Yeah. Instead of like you know like because bad things happen to women when they fall in love and it's not just in horror movies it's all the time. It's a dicey business. Yeah. Just be an artist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, actually, that reminds me of a great Marilyn Monroe quote because she, after her marriage breakdown, I think it was after, it might have been after she divorced um, Joe DiMaggio, but maybe it was another lover. Um, she said, that's it, I'm through with love. Uh, love has never done anything good for me. It's just it's just broken my heart and made me feel depressed. So I'm just going to concentrate on my work. Mm-hmm. You know, work is my love now. I don't want to be in love. I want to be in work. Mm. And so actually... If only she had followed her own I know. Yeah. I know. But yeah, I think um, 
that sort of summarizes everything I wanted to say about mother. Mm-hmm. Same. Um, I'm glad we touched on this and and kind of went beyond actually just the, the a reductive uh, discussion of just pregnancy. Uh, but before we close off, I did want to shout out two of our recent donors. Yeah. Uh, Michael and Graham. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for supporting us. And have we thanked Julie? She was our first donor. She was our sure first we, donor. We might have in a previous episode. Yeah, we yes. did. Yeah. We did. But thank you all to all, all of you, really, mm-hmm. for supporting us. And not just monetarily, but also in the amazing, encouraging words that you share with us, your feedback, your ratings of our uh, podcasts on iTunes. Mm-hmm. All of those things matter to us. And we love your support. It, it just makes us want to continue recording. And yeah, just in closing, uh, just remember that, you know, we put you through a lot with our films. Yeah, we're, very, we're, like, we're really proud of you. We're proud of far. you. We're here for you if you're scared. We want the best for we you. We want the best for you. <laughs> Bye. Bye.